handed. Uh, they were powerless. Uh, they were helpless. They were viewed by their society as the least of the least among them. They came before Jesus. They didn't have anything to give Jesus. They, didn't, they couldn't do anything for Jesus. Again, their hands were empty, but yet Jesus responds in a very interesting way. Jesus embraces them in his arms, and he says, such is the kingdom of God. In other words, those that he gives the kingdom of God are just like these children. They come empty-handed. Now, this is radically different than the man that's going to come to Jesus today. He comes, and he's going to come, we're going to see, with his hands full. His hands are full of all kinds of accolades and all kinds of accomplishments and all kinds of acknowledgments from his peers. He's accomplished great things. He has great wealth. He owns many properties. He's going to come to Jesus with his hands full, and Jesus is going to deny him the kingdom of God. This is, I believe, and I've never re- referred, heard it referred to as this, but to me, this is the saddest story in all of the book of Mark. In fact, for me, it's the saddest story in all of the Gospels. Because this is the only man that we read about in the book of Mark that comes sincerely to Jesus to receive something. And he's the only man who walks away disappointed. He comes to Jesus sincerely, yet he walks away empty-handed, and he walks away disappointed in Jesus Christ. And what I want to, and that began to resonate in my heart this week. And the question for us is, why was he disappointed? Why did he leave being disappointed in Jesus? And I think that there are two primary reasons for this. And I want to see these things in the text of Scripture and walk very carefully through the text. The first reason that he's disappointed after coming face to face with Jesus Christ is because the man committed fatal errors. The man committed fatal errors. Look, if you will, in verse 17. The Bible says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and he knelt before him and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is on a journey. Where is he going to? He's going to Jerusalem He's making his way to Jerusalem, and it's there he will suffer, and it's there that he will die and give his life as a ransom for many. And on his way, he's running into different people, different groups of people. And on this one particular day, a man comes to him. Matthew really identifies him and describes him as a young man. Luke refers to him and identifies him and describes him as a ruler. Um, um, what we find is through the reading of the story, he was also very, very rich. He owned many possessions. So when you take all of those descriptions and you put them together, that's where we come up with our, with our title, the story of the rich young ruler. All of us are probably very familiar with this story. And now what's interesting to me is that Mark doesn't use these adjectives to describe him. All he merely describes him as is a man. Now that's very typical for Mark. Mark really doesn't give us a whole lot of names of the people that he tells these stories about. It's always a father or a daughter or a man. And I think that he does this, and I'm finding this, this kind of rhythm through the book. I believe he does that purposely, not because he's bad with names. I think he's doing it because he doesn't want you and I to be some outsider, just kind of like a bystander that's watching all of this happen from a distance. He's inviting you and I into the story for us to identify with the characters. He wants you and I to jump into the story and find out 
Who are we more like? Who do we identify with? Do we identify with those children who come to God empty-handed? Or do we identify with this man who come to Jesus with all types of things in our hands to give to him? Who do we identify with? And I believe that's why Mark doesn't give him a name. And so what Mark does there is he provides for us the fact that this man, and he gives us all these verbs, the man ran up to Jesus, he knelt before Jesus, he called Jesus good teacher, he's doing all these things. And what this really lets us know is that this man, and it's important to understand, is sincere. He's a sincere man. He's, he's not like all the scribes and the Pharisees that been, have been coming up to Jesus. He's not the kind of guy that's been coming to try to speak Jesus or ask a question that's going to trump Jesus or trick Jesus or, or to get him to be confused and lose his following. This man is sincere. He has a sincere question that he desperately needs Jesus to answer. And the question is this. He comes to him and he says, what must I do to eternal life? What a significant question. I can't really think of any more significant question. The only question that is really even greater than this was the one that Jesus posed himself to to Peter when he said to Peter, he says, who is it? Who do you say that I am? But this is the greatest question asked of anybody so far in the book. In fact, nobody has even asked this question, not even his disciples, but it is the question that we must all ask ourselves and find the answer to. What must we do to inherit eternal life? So it shows us that he is sincere, but it also shows us something else. It shows us his first fatal error. By him asking Jesus, what must he do to inherit life? It shows that he believed that one could inherit the kingdom of God by being good and doing good. He believed that the way that you became a believer in God and and inherited God and eternity and heaven and all of these things was by being a good person and by doing good things. That's what's evident. Here's the first fatal mistake that he makes. Now, notice how Jesus responds to him in verse 18. It says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. Now, this seems like kind of a strange way to respond to this. I don't know about you, but there are people that I desperately want to be saved in my, in my own life, people that I know, in my sphere of influence, right? Friends, family members, co-workers. Are you with me? Well, not too many of my co-workers. I hope that they're, they're saved. I pray that they are. But, but we all identify that. Would you agree that there are people that you know that desperately you want to see to come to faith in Jesus Christ? And are you like me? You are just doing everything you can to try to get the gospel out. And you are muddling it and murdering it like crazy, but yet you're just trying to find every opportunity that you can to share the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't always do a good job, but this is what disciples do. They share the good news of Jesus Christ, amen? And so here he is in and, and, and here, but how often does this happen? How often do people come and fall at your feet, run to you, fall at your feet and say, how can I be saved? How can I have eternal life? Jesus has an amazing opportunity. Now, let me tell you how I kind of view this in my own context. My own Yuli, Nassau County, 21st century context. This is what I think is going to happen next. While he's down there, Jesus is going to say, well, while you're down there, go ahead and close your eyes, bow your head, and pray this prayer after me. Ask me into the God-sized hole in your heart, right? And we're supposed to go, yeah, Jesus, just, just have him pray the prayer, Just get them in your heart. And the guy will look up. How do I get you in my heart? It it doesn't matter. I know it's confusing. Just do it. You'll be saved, right? That's in in our context. That's how we kind of feel like maybe this is going to happen. But Jesus doesn't do that at all. He instead, he 
as Eaton typically does, he responds to a question with a question. And the question seems incredibly odd unless we understand the Jewish first century context of what was going on during that time. What Jesus is doing is he's calling this man on his use of the word good. Because Jews in the first century did not believe that anyone was good except for God. In fact, they would refer to different rabbis in very, very nice ways, very honoring ways, but they would reserve the word good for God and God alone. They were afraid to use the word good for a rabbi or for anybody else and fear that they would be committing blasphemy. So what Jesus, in essence, is doing here, uh, Jesus is coming and, he's, and he's, 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 he, wh- the question we ask is, but why does Jesus respond to the man this particular way? What he's trying to do is he's calling the man on what he believes, this man, how he defines what good is. He says, you're good, and Jesus sits back and goes, I thought only God was good. Why in the world would you call me good? The question is, this man thinks, and this is going to bring up the second problem here, this man makes his second fatal error. He believes that man can be good. He has the ability to be good, and this is what Jesus is calling him on. First mistake, he believes that you can go to heaven, inherit the kingdom of God by being good and doing good. The second fatal error he makes is he honestly believes that man can be good enough to inherit the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is calling him on it. So what he does is to really try to get him to understand a more clear biblical understanding of what good is, he takes him to the Ten Commandments. And he says, you know the commandments. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, all of those commands are taken from Deuteronomy or Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. They're all there um, as the Ten Commandments, except for one, do not defraud. That is more of an application of the thou shalt not steal. But by listening to the Ten Commandments, what Jesus is doing is he is getting this man to redefine what the Old Testament says about what being good is all about and what good looks like. And so what he's also doing, he's doing one more thing. He's also being consistent with the Old Testament teaching because this is what it says in Deuteronomy 30 and Ezekiel chapter 35, that a man who obeys the law will live. The scriptures say that. The Bible says this man believes that you can be right. This man believes that you can be saved by being good because the word of God says it. It says the man, a man who obeys the law will live. Here's the mistake that they make, however. When the prophets say the man who obeys the law will live, he's saying the man who obeys it perfectly and in its uh, its entirety will have eternal life. Somebody who is completely blameless, somebody who has never sinned, somebody who has fulfilled the law and all of its things and have never ever sinned, that person is righteous and therefore can inherit the kingdom of God on his own. But what this man is confused and the Jews were confused about is they believed that they could actually keep the whole law. It's evident in what this man says right here. He says, teacher, and here's his third fatal flaw or third fatal mistake. He says, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Do you see the fatal errors he's making? I believe that I can be saved by good works, by being good and doing good things. Second, that man can be good enough Man, it's possible for him to be good enough to earn salvation. And here's what he says. And he says, and I have been good enough. Now, it's easy for us to really question this guy's integrity, right? I mean, come on, man. 
Look, you might be good, but you're not that good. We've all sinned. We've all done things wrong. We're not perfect. We know that. So what's going on? This man, when he says, look, I have kept these things from my youth, what he was saying is from the age of 12, which were for the Jews, the age of 12 was what they referred to and believed was the age of accountability. They believed that it was at that particular point that they were now accountable to be able to follow all of the laws of Moses and the laws of God. And he says, since the age of 12, I have kept all these things. He's sincere. And did you notice that Jesus doesn't say, you're a liar? He doesn't say that. Why? How do we understand this? The man is sincere, and Jesus identifies to a certain extent that he is right, that he has kept the law. Why? Because the Jews remember that they only emphasize the outward action, not the inward intent of the heart. So the guy is telling the truth. He says, I've never, since I was 12 years old, killed anybody. Is he correct in saying that? Yes. He says, listen, from the age of 12, he goes, I have never stolen anything. When I was a little kid, I stole some candy, but at the age of 12, I didn't steal anything from anybody else. He says, I have never committed adultery on another woman. I've never done any of these things. So do you see how he can be sincere? Do you see how he believes that he could be righteous because the law says those who keep the law will be saved? He believes that he's right. The mistake that the Jews were constantly making, and please get this, that Jesus would not only judge the actions, he would also judge the intents of the heart. See, what this man and the Jews could think is they could sit there and they could hate somebody and they could want to kill them. But as long as they didn't go through the killing, they felt like they were perfected. They felt like they were holy. They felt like as long as they didn't go through the actual act of adultery with another man or another woman or whatever it was, then they were okay. But if they were to lust in their heart on a continual basis, that was okay. They were still made righteous. So what Jesus has to do is he has to shake up our understanding of what it means to truly be good. He says the goodness that God requires is not only our actions on the outside, but it's our hearts that must be good. The very intents of our hearts must be pure. And so Jesus is shaking these guys. That's why in the, in the scriptures, uh, we, we, we see, this is why uh, Paul said the same exact thing in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6. He says, as he was identifying himself as a Jew, as a good Jew, he said, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's how he's able to say that he was blameless, because outwardly, he was fine. So Jesus has to shake them up. How does he do this? Well, he begins to bring them back to the intent. What's your heart like? Not what do you look like on the outside, but what does your heart look like? And so in Matthew chapter 5, he starts teaching these things. He starts saying, "You, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent, see the intent? With lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, guys, it's not only what you're doing, but it's every thought. It's your thoughts, it's your emotions, it's your direction, it's your desires inside that have to be good as well. And he says, it's not you just describing to these good works, but it's literally your heart being right before God. And so this man has to come to this particular conclusion. And so Paul finally came to that conclusion himself. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, think of coveting with somebody. Where does that happen? Does that happen on the outside or the inside? 
So Paul says, I was always thinking that according to the law, outwardly I was righteous, but inwardly because of the law, because it showed me that he was also considering the intent of my heart in the law, thou shalt not covet. He goes, I begin to realize that I was a sinner and I was not good. That's how I came to know of my sinfulness. So this man has got to come to the same conclusion. You know, I think it's incredibly odd because here is a man who is so confident. He's so confident he knows how to have eternal life be good. He's so confident that man can be good. And he is uber confident that he has been good. The only thing he's not confident in is whether he's truly born again or not. There's something within him that he knows that is not quite. There's something that is empty. There's something that's missing. He is not He is not secure in the fact that he truly believes that he has eternal life. Now, what I want you to see in this first point is simply this. What I want you to see here is that a person can be extremely sincere. He can say good things about Jesus. He can even have fond thoughts of Jesus, high view of Jesus Christ. And he can spend his entire life being religiously good in doing right things and trying to follow the law of God. And catch this, please don't miss this. This is terrifying to me. Be that sincere of desiring to have eternal life and still be sincerely lost. That shakes me. It shakes me because usually when I think about lost folk, what I begin to think of is I begin to think of people who are disingenuous. I think of more like the Pharisees that think that they're really something, but inwardly they know that they're wrong and they're sinful, but they just kind of keep putting this face on and, 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 and hate what's righteous and hate all these things. But yet there are people, he says, that are also equally as lost that seem very sincere about religious things, about doing right things, even sincere about kind of Jesus and who he is, and even sincere about wanting eternal life. They're doing the whole thing. He says, but they were equally as lost. Did I word that in a way that it's impacting you the way that it impacted me when I'm studying it? That's shocking to me. Now, it shouldn't be shocking because we could use other religions to be able to demonstrate this. Let's think about, let's think of uh, Islam. Let's think of somebody who is a Muslim. What does he want to do? He wants to have eternal life. He wants to go to heaven. That's where he wants to spend eternity. So what does he do? Well, he he, he he does all that he can. He follows religiously these five pillars of Islam. He is constantly doing all he can to make sure that he prays five times a day. He fasts during the month of Ramadan. He, he gives money to the poor. He takes pilgrimage at, at least once in his lifetime to Mecca. He's doing all of these things that he can. Why? Because he believes that if he is good and somehow can be good enough, that sometime, somehow he'd be accepted and he will inherit eternal, eternal life. But what's so frightening about this is this man as well, these Muslims, they believe in Jesus. They have a high view of him. He is a great prophet. And they go through the rest of their life being very devout, being very moral. Are are you finding this? But yet none of us in here just about would argue for the fact that, hey, listen, that they're lost. We wouldn't argue against that. They were like, look, I know they're sincere, but they're just off. They're, They're missing something just like this man but we have a much more difficult time recognizing and understanding that there are people in our churches that are the same way. Just because it's a different type of religion 
We think that they're all right, but they're not all right. They are. There are people that come here every Sunday that are incredibly sincere. They come to the house of God and they say, I want eternal life. They say, I want to be accepted by God. There are people who come every week and they are doing everything they can. They are trying to follow the law and they're trying to do good and they're trying to be good. But they're missing something. What are they missing? They are just like this man because they're resting and depending on their own goodness and not the goodness of God. Still in their hearts, they still believe that this whole salvation thing still rests on them. If somehow they could just be good enough, just go to church enough, just be able to give enough, just be able to share the gospel enough, just be able to do this, that somehow, some way, that they'll be accepted by God. And they make the same three fatal errors that this man makes, and that always makes you disappointed in Jesus. There's a second thing that the scriptures teach us here. It's the second thing that he did. The man was disappointed when he came face to face with Jesus because the man refused Jesus' call. Now let's look at this call. I think that there are three characteristics of this call. First of all, it was a loving call. Notice Jesus' response in verse 21. It says, and Jesus looking at him loved him. Now the word looking there is an has an intensified meaning. It means to look intently and to examine closely. This man, Jesus, was looking at this man not just passing over him, but looking at the very intents of his heart, looking at the folds of his heart, and he sees that this man is extremely sincere. He desperately wants eternal life. And so Jesus looks at him, and the Bible says that he loves him. And in loving him, he tells him the truth, even though the difficulty is hard. He tells him the truth. What is the truth? You lack one thing. Do you know the truth is hard? When God comes and he begins to share with us and he lets us know that we're believers and that we have, we have fallen short of the glory of God, do you know that that's painful? Can you imagine how painful this is? This man is doing everything he knows and Jesus says, you're still missing something. There's something you haven't done. Can you imagine how devastating that must have been for this man? This sincere man that takes his religion that seriously, deadly serious. What's interesting to me about this whole thing is he comes to him and he says that you are lacking one thing. I think Jesus is saying, hey, listen, man, it's great. I identify you've done all these things, but you're lacking the one important thing that you most need. I love what one commentator says here, and I think he gets it right. James Edwards says this, how profoundly ironic is the kingdom of God. The children in the former story who possess nothing are not told that they are lacking anything, but rather the kingdom of God is theirs. Yet this man who possesses everything is still lacking. When Jesus comes and he identifies with us and he says that you are a sinner, deserving of hell, it hurts. But he's doing it out of love because he says you're still lacking something, the very thing that you need. It's a loving call. The second thing we see is that it was a radical call. And notice what he says. And I want you to get this more than anything else. He says, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Now, we've got to clearly make sure that we understand what Jesus is doing here. Or we could be immensely confused. Jesus is not saying, hey, hey, buddy, there's more outward conformities that I need you to ascribe to. All right? He's not saying, look, you've got this list. 
but your list isn't quite long enough. You've got nine, but you're lacking the ten. If you'll just get the ten and do the tenth thing, then you're good as gold. You'll be in. It will get you over the top. You'll be able to inherit then the kingdom of God based on your good works. Jesus is not saying that at all. In fact, he's saying just the opposite of it. He's not calling, he's calling for something far more radical. And listen to me. Christianity is not calling you to just outward conformity to look more like a believer or to look more and to do more things that the Bible tells you to do. It's a more radical, far-reaching call to that, to follow Jesus Christ. It is not a call to just outward conformity, but it is a call to a radical internal transformation. What Jesus is saying to this man as he's saying to him, is he saying, he's not saying that, hey, if you will do this, then you will earn your salvation. He says, if you want to know that you're saved, go ahead and sell all you have, give to the poor, and then you will know that you are born again. That's kind of confusing, isn't it? In fact, the scriptures are kind of confusing when it comes to, the, to this whole thing. I mean, doesn't the scriptures constantly kind of tell us, you know, on one side, it keeps telling us, hey, listen, your preacher, there's nothing you could do to be saved, and then the Bible, all it does is tell us all these things that we should be doing? Have you ever noticed that? Matthew chapter 25, we get to Matthew chapter 25, what does it say? He says he'll separate on that final day sheep from the goats, and he'll look at the goats, and he'll say, depart from me into eternal, you know, damnation. And what do they do? They go, why? And they go, because when I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was sick and in prison, you didn't visit, visit me. What you didn't do to the least of these, my brethren, he goes, you did not do unto me, so depart from me. And the only difference between those who were in and those who were out was based on what they did, okay? But then you look at Matthew chapter five. In Matthew chapter five, he says, people will come up to him, to the judge, to Jesus on that day, and he will go, I'm going to cast you in everlasting darkness. And they come to Jesus and they go, but, but Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do all manner of good in your name? And what does Jesus say to them that did all these good things? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Do you see how it's kind of like these two things? These people, hey, get out of here. You did a lot, but get out of here. And what does it say over on this side? Hey, you didn't do anything, get out of here. Or you did everything, but get out of here. Why? I didn't know you. So what, what's going on here? The Bible's, well, I think Paul really explains it well in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Don't you, Brother Jimmy? In, in, in Ephesians 8 through 10, this is what he says. Now, you know the scripture, but, but hear it very carefully. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a what? A gift from God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. What is he saying there? He's saying to this man, you can't do anything. When you come before God, you can't come and say, here are all the things that I've done. Here are all the things I've accomplished. Here's all my stuff. Now accept me based on what I've done. Jesus says, you have to come empty-handed. That's what he's saying. That's what he says here. It's a gift from God. Not that you can do it. Not that I can do it. Only God can do it. It's a work of God, not a work of us. But then notice what he says in verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. So he says, listen, he's not talking about good works for salvation. He's saying good works as evidence of salvation. He says, you can't work and do all these things and expect that you're going to be saved. But if I work in you and save you, 
I will recreate you in such a way that everything will change. You will look radically different and you will perform good works. Not because you're trying to earn salvation, but it's the outflow and the evidence that you have received salvation. That's what Jesus is saying about selling all he has. He's not saying if you sell everything you have, that you will be born again. He's saying if you sell everything you have and give it to the poor, it will demonstrate that you have eternal life. Does that make sense? Now, notice this, but why does Jesus tell him specifically to sell all that he has? Now, let me just say something very clearly so that you can relax and you can breathe. Jesus is not telling every believer to sell all they have and give to the poor. (gasps) (sighs) 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 What a a relief. Now, if you sigh in relief, I know what one commentator says. He says, He's not calling all of us to sell all we have and give to the poor, but if you find relief in the fact that he doesn't tell you to sell all you have and give to the poor, then he is telling you to sell all you have and give to the poor. And what do you say? I, I, I'm fine with it. It was good. I didn't sigh. I was just tired. I was stretching. I'm good. It's all good. But why does he tell him to give this up? Why did he tell him, hey, go, go build a children's hospital? That'd be awesome. Man, that, that would be great. Go open up a food pantry. Dude. Keep working. Keep doing your thing. Why does he tell him specifically to sell all you have and to give to God? Here's why. Because materialism was his God. It is incredible to me that this man was able to be able to follow all of these laws, but he failed in the greatest law of all. He failed in the first commandment, which says you should have no other God above me. What he was doing is he was exalting his riches and his stuff and his affections for them were far greater than for God and for the person of Jesus Christ. He was failing to do the first and greatest commandment, to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was failing in the second commandment. Then to do what? Then to love your neighbor as yourself. He tells in both commandments, hey, take everything you have, love God more than your stuff, and then show your love for me by bestowing it upon your neighbor. That's what I'm telling you to do. You're doing all this, but you're failing to do the one thing. His greatest affections, he goes, he goes were, were to be reserved not for his money and his stuff. They were to be reserved for God. God alone was to have the throne of his heart to rule fully and completely. He was not to submit himself and live for the things of this world, but he was to submit himself fully and completely to God and God alone. Are you, are you with me? And so what do we do here? He says, you know, l- l- let me suggest this. There are some folks that today in Nassau County, I don't know how you share your faith. I don't know if you have a cube the gospel cube or whatever it is that you try to share. That's fine. Cube, cube it away, man. Cube it all day. I don't know if you do it with tracks. You know, you do the, you know, the secret assassin way, which is kind of like, you know, you just lay a track somewhere and you're out of there. Nobody saw me secret assassin way. You know, hey, look, however you're sharing the gospel, I think Brother Jimmy or evangelism, hey, I'm, I'm happy. And if you, it's a cube, it's a track, it's whatever it is. Whatever you're doing to get the gospel out there, Great. But let me just tell you how I've kind of changed the way that I share the gospel. Now, it's taken me eight and a half years to get it, okay? I know I'm an outsider, but I'm starting to get it, okay? Here's what I do not do anymore. I don't come up to people when I'm trying to share the gospel, and I don't ask them, excuse me, are you a Christian? I don't ask them that anymore. Now, you can. I'm just telling you where, where I am now. 
nor do I come to them anymore and ask this. I don't ever ask them, have you, has there ever been a time that you asked Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life? I don't ask those things. You know why? Because every time I've ever asked it, it's been a yes and a yes. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, there was a time that I asked Jesus into the God-sized hole of my heart to be my Lord and to be my Savior. But yet when you look at the individual, there's no, conf- you know, he's usually, you know, doing drugs, uh, you know, with a keg of beer, with, a, uh, look, I, I know all you drinkers, I, don't be offended, but I'm just telling you, and he's sitting there with tats all up one side or the other. He's using swear language. He's beating his dog. He's cheating on his wife. He's doing all these kinds of things. But yet he's done the two things that it, he says that is required. So who am I to say anything? Well, I got tired of this, okay? So what I've done, because like you, we sit there, we look at that, and we go, but that doesn't look like salvation. You know why? Because it's not salvation. And so what do I say now? This is usually my lead-in now for leading or talking to people about the gospel. I ask them, excuse me, are you a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Are you a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? And this is so good because all the religious folk here, that, that completely jacks them up. They're used to the other thing. Have you ever had Jesus ask, ask Jesus into your God-sized hole of your heart? Yes, I've done that. Okay, good. But this whole faithful follower of Jesus thing, that's new, what's going on. So in a little while, if we use this a lot, we're going to just have to change the way that we do it because they'll get used to that as well, right? And so we come to them and I ask them, and here's what I begin to ask them, is the greatest desire in your life to submit yourself completely and fully to the teachings and the commands of Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered to God's absolute claim on your life? It's your greatest devotion for Christ. Is, 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 is for God. Is it, uh, does your devotion to God trump your devotion to family, to friends, to work, and of course, as in, the, in this case, money? Have you had to choose between your family, and I'm not talking about your immediate family, but friends and family and work and your riches? Would you choose Jesus Christ over those things. Would you choose those things? Here's the danger. Here's the danger of this. The danger of this, it's so easy to say yes. In fact, Jesus wasn't even saying, would you be willing to give everything you have and to give it to the poor? Was he asking that? No, he said, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Do you see the distinction? It's easy for you and God, well, of course, if I had to give it up, I'd be willing to give it up. Then why don't you ask him, what he would have you give up. Because there are people all the time who were sitting and they come to faith and they go, listen, uh, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. I will do anything for Jesus, but I won't be obedient to him in this area of my life. Do you understand? This is the same thing that this lost man did. I will give you everything, Jesus. But this one area of my life. Do you understand that this salvation is a radical call? It's radical. And it's not only radical, but it's a rewarding call. I'm going to unpack this much more next week. But notice what he says, and he says, and you will have treasure in heaven. He says, you're not giving it up for nothing. You're giving it up for everything. You're giving up this small, temporal little thing for everything everything. We'll talk about this next week. He's in essence saying, if you will just give up the treasure here that you cannot keep, you will gain treasure in heaven that you cannot lose. Sounds like an awesome deal. 
We're going to talk more about that next week. Now, notice his response in verse 22. I'm expecting at this particular point, as I'm reading through this, for this man to sit there and go, yes, Jesus, I give it up and I'll follow you. You're worth more than all the riches of this world combined. But it's not how he responds. In verse 22, it says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. He was disheartened. The word disheartened there, notice this, means shocked and appalled. Jesus' definition of what it took, the call to be saved, was so radical. He was shocked, offended, and appalled by it. And there are people today, even here in the church, when we talk about when we talk about the type of salvation, the call that Jesus has been calling us to, and I think that you guys will follow me, track with me, we're just preaching the text. When Jesus says you must deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. When he says you must deny all things and usurp those things of your heart, those things that you love for me, and I must abound as supreme over all of those things, that's the calling of salvation. Salvation is not adding something onto my life in order to be saved. Jesus, who is my life, Paul says in Colossians. That's the radical call. And that's what people for years have been fighting against. But that's what Jesus calls for. It's a radical call. Now, the word sorrowful, he went away sorrowful, is also a really describing deep word here. Because the same word, it can be translated sad or grieved. I love grieved. Because it's translated that word that way in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew, the same, the same word is used in the account of Jesus. And where is Jesus? Jesus is, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he knows what's about to happen. What's about to happen? He's about to have the sins of the world, the sins of all those to whom he saved, are going to be placed on him at that point on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become his righteousness. At that point, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He knows this is about to happen. But what else does he know that's going to happen? The wrath of his father is going to pour out on him. And why does he grieve? Because that which is most wonderful and glorious, that which he loves more than anything else, his father is temporarily going to be taken away from him, and he grieves. He's not going to have the father anymore. That's what calls him, his soul, to grieve. This man, same word for grieve. This man's riches is the same thing as God is for Jesus. It is what he loves the most. And he walks away from the faith and walks away from Jesus because his love for his stuff or his love for anything else was just too great. He couldn't give it up. It would be too painful for him to be able to give this up. But understand what the scriptures say. We could sit there and say, well, it's all about money. It might be money for you. But it doesn't matter what it is. We must lay it aside. For the disciples, it was their nets. For the tax collector, it was his business and his occupation. For this man, it's riches and his material possessions. He loves these things more than he loves God. And to be able to give them up would cause him to grieve. It would be too much pain for him to be able to give up. What do we do with this? I think there are two points of application, finally. This is the saddest story 
in the Gospels. And I say that not only because it, not because it occurred once, because it's happening even now. And it happens hundreds of thousands and millions of times throughout history of people who seem to be sincere about God in eternal life. Refuse to put to death and to repent and to turn from those things and allow God to rule and reign over their life. They're just like this man. They're sincere, but they're sincerely lost. So there are two groups of people. One would be those who sit there and they come this morning and they're like, Mike, I've been maybe visiting here for a while and I've been hearing what you say about the gospel. And I know what the gospel is. It's complete and utter surrender to God. It's complete surrender to God. Now, you and I both know that when we get saved, we begin to understand more fully what that means, right? Because God begins to expose things that we, we didn't, that we need to continue to surrender to him. But the true believer continues to do what? Continues to surrender with him. Sometimes we fight over it. Sometimes it takes a little while, but we keep fighting for it. And eventually, what do we do? We surrender it. So maybe you're coming this morning and maybe you're thinking to yourself, Mike, do I have to stop this or do I have to stop that to follow Jesus? Yes. It's what you must give up to follow Jesus. Listen, not because of your goodness, but because of God's goodness. You cannot earn your salvation. Jesus Christ earned it for you on the cross. He did what you could not do. He, had, he lived the perfect life and had the sin poured out on him to pay for your sin debt. If you will come to him as the child and no longer as the adult man and say, God, I am not working for salvation anymore. I've got nothing to bring. He'll embrace you. He'll save you. He'll bestow upon you eternal life. Now, there are some that I know very well that there are believers, true believers in Jesus Christ. But what must we do with this teaching? Each believer must honestly look in his heart and see what things are competing for his affections towards God. There are things in my heart that compete, that vie for my affections for God. There are materialistic things in my life that I have to keep in check because I find myself gratituding, gra gra gravitating and loving. And listen, having my affections sometimes and sometimes in my life, just honestly, that are greater for these things than they are for God. What do we do from that? We repent. We place our faith and we say, God, cleanse my heart from this. Give me a heart for you. God, I can't work my way. See, did you notice that there's nothing you can really do here? It's not, it's not like a do better message. You know what it is? It's a believe more message. Come to him and demonstrate faith by saying, God, there are other things that I'm finding myself love more than you. And Jesus, that's lostness, not salvation. And come and repent. And you know what's awesome? You don't have to go away disappointed. You can go away with full joy and confidence that Jesus has saved you because of his goodness and not because of yours. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that go around and like, Mike, I've done all of this and I've been committed to this church and I've been doing everything, but I'm like this man. There's just something missing. The most important thing. Complete and absolute 
surrender to Christ. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. God, I pray this morning that there will be some that will come to faith in you. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that the rest of us will come. And God, we will just get on our faces either there or here, wherever it is. God, we will fight against these great affections that we have for the stuff or for the position or for the accolades of man. And we will identify where it is and we will repent from it and we will come to you and say, God, change my heart, oh God. Give me my greatest affections for you and not for this stuff. God, allow me to come and fully surrender to you by faith, by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? I'm gonna be down here if you'd like to respond but respond today according to the teaching of God's word.